The Diplomacy Dojo is a weekly discussion led by your board brother about diplomacy tactics and strategies. Let's listen in on what our players are discussing this week. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. I, uh, I got a lot going on, but playing games, as usual, brings joy to my life. We're not directly playing a game, of course. We're just talking about it here in the dojo. So what would you like to talk about today? I mean, I think the the part of the game that is still somewhat a mystery to me is recognizing patterns in mid to late game. So early game patterns seem to make a lot of sense. I don't know that I have really the intuitions to just do the mid to late game well. So I think it might be helpful to recognize some patterns and then be able to, you know, at least have a heuristic structure for how to approach it. Okay, that sounds good. Are there other topics that come to mind? Yeah, uh, I suppose how to recognize a certain way of playing in the other players, you know, how the other players, what kind of player they are. Uh, and then again, kind of having some heuristic structures to to recognize patterns within those kinds of players. Okay, that makes sense. Is there more? I guess the final thing then would be how to take those patterns and distill them into a sort of concrete predictive maybe algorithm is the wrong way to put it, but how to how to take those things and make them into a concrete prediction on what you think a player is going to do. These are in, incredibly insightful questions and show that you've been playing diplomacy for quite a while uh, to be thinking about it. And I think that your idea for how to go through them in order makes sense to me. So I think we should take the topics in the order that you presented them. Let's start with uh, this first question about recognizing patterns in mid to late game. In the beginning of, diplom of the diplomacy match, usually you're trying to figure out uh, which players are friendly to you and which players are hostile and see if you can have any effect on that. If your situation is not a good one, how can you influence players to change? And if your situation is a good one, how can you make sure players play consistent with it? That's usually what's going on in the early game. But then in the mid game, there is a transition and I'll define the mid game as the point in which several powers have expanded and become much stronger than others. And some other powers have been either eliminated or weakened to the point where they're no longer viable. They're no longer viable as a strong power. So let's say your mid game could be that there are three equally strong huge powers or there could be five, but uh, at least some of the players are are getting taken out. I have played some games where what I'm, what I'm describing as the early game has gone on until 1907, 1909, because the players figured out their allies early on, nobody was duped, and the players all locked horns, and no one was able to get a good tactical advantage, nobody really expanded significantly, and the game became long and grinding. That's not common, uh, but it is possible. So the early game is not defined by the amount of time that has passed in the match, in my opinion, but by the political structure. So in the, the mid-game transition, the players who have who are faced with elimination are looking for some way to either 
desperately get into the draw? Where can I where can I hide? What is the most defensible location on the map that's available to me? Or possibly to start throwing the match because they got nothing better to do or they hope that that will help them maybe make it on a stalemate line position somewhere. And players who are strong are looking for how they're going to continue towards an ultimate end game. And there are two that they're thinking about. One is, can I solo win? And multiple players could think this. It could be two or three players even think, yeah, solo win is still possible for me. Or they think, well, I got, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the players that's going to get eliminated, but several players or one player so much stronger than me that I am not really playing for a solo win here. I'm just trying to make sure that, that I get in the draw and they're playing a certain way. So you're looking to assess what of these approaches the other players are thinking. Let's say that there's an England-Germany alliance in the early game. And uh, we are trans- we have transitioned out of early game because France and Russia have been crushed. Uh, maybe they've got one or two units left each, but they're crushed. And so now England and Germany must each make a decision. Am I going to try to play this alliance out a little further? Or is it time to backstab my ally? Because neither England nor Germany stands a realistic chance of winning without fully conquering the other. If they are thinking, hey, you know, uh, I'm never going to get a better opportunity. If one of them thinks that, if one of them thinks that they're never going to get a better opportunity to backstab and they do it, well, then the other one is sort of forced. Okay, well, that, now we're fighting. Uh, we, we finished off our early enemies and now we're fighting. But if they both decide not to fight, then they could continue on a little further. Maybe England gets into Tunis or Germany gets into Venice or so, something kind of interesting. Uh, that can happen. Or it's possible that one of the distant powers, like let's say Turkey or Austria or Italy, has gotten so much stronger that that power would solo win probably if either England or Germany betrayed each other. And so the players decide not to fight. And I think that that is what is going on uh, during the mid-game mindsets of most players. Can I backstab my early major ally? Are they going to backstab me? What, what, What are the pros and cons? What are the risks and benefits? You know, how realistic are my solo win prospects compared to other powers? So the reason why the number of players entering, a number of viable powers entering can be different is let's say in the early game, Turkey destroyed Italy, Austria, and Russia and has like 10 supply centers and they're all, they're all debilitated and neither France nor Germany nor England overpowered each other and Russia has some kind of presence in the north. The mid game may be some kind of alliance of four powers fiddling with each other trying to figure out, hey, can we eliminate anybody do we need to stop turkey from so low winning what what it's quite a jumble uh whereas maybe the same situation is going on in the south but france and germany have completely locked down they've taken out england russia's out of the north in that situation uh france and germany might be juggling am i gonna win is my ally gonna win is turkey gonna win i don't i don't know and it, it makes it a lot harder to to figure it out i mean i'm sorry it's a different analysis Another way of describing the transition into a mid-game is that either one, an alliance or a power has taken over one side of the map. So the patterns to look for in terms of the getting a little more precise is whether the players are deciding to consolidate power on their side of the map or they're going to let that go and try to cross over onto the others. And that means that they're trying to they're trying to solo in probably. There are some players who will do that because they're just that loyal. Like they just, I'm just, I'm not going to backstab my ally. So I'm just going to see what happens over there. That's possible. Uh, but usually it's because they're trying to get these more valuable centers. In, in diplomacy, 
the more distant the supply center is from your starting point, the more valuable it is to you because of how difficult it will be to get in in the end game. So that's what I look for uh, when I feel like, okay, what's what's happening in the mid game? Some enemies become friends, some friends become enemies, that sort of thing. Uh, once a player is openly going for the solo win, I say end game has begun because now we're going to find out, all right, are they going to win or are they going to be stopped? Sometimes like a solo win attempt is stopped in such a way that it generates a board game state that's again more like a mid game situation where, okay, not only do we stop the solo win, we actually penetrated their line quite a bit this player is no longer a solo win threat they're just a middle-sized power actually now this other guy uh is the biggest power and so the game can continue on and in a well-played game of diplomacy that actually might happen two or three times that someone attempts a solo win is stopped the game can goes back to a mid-game sort of state uh and continues from there that it's almost the end game is only the end game in retrospect that there might be crisis moments that aren't necessarily end game states, but they become end game states when one of the two outcomes of an end game state happen. I think that is fair to say. I think that we do need the bias of hindsight to understand if it really was an end game state or not, because in the moment it depends on the player's perceptions. In, in like a press diplomacy game, you'll be discussing these things, and there are players who will just disagree about what is the status of the game. Is it still, is there still a lot of life left in the match or is this one that's about to end? And of course, there's going to be some propaganda incorporated into that about whether they would like the game to end because they don't see it going well for them the longer it continues. Uh, And in a gunboat game, even then, it can be clear that the players don't necessarily have the same perceptions where one player is reacting like this guy's going to go for a solo win. There is, I'll throw this in there, it is possible to generate an end game state by deliberately powering up one player. If they accept this grant of power, then you may create that situation. This is something that I do. I, I call this strategy sometimes of deliberately suiciding some of your supply centers to make one power much stronger than the others. Take yourself hostage. It's a simple thing. It's that you're, you're, the, you're, you're trying to communicate either, either with your moves or if in, in a press game in combination with your moves. Uh, form a stalemate line that runs through these supply centers that I have. I'm giving up all the rest of them to this to this one player, and uh, you either defend me and vote draw, or you will lose because there's nothing. Uh, if you don't defend me, I'm just gonna the centers are gonna go to the winner. That can be really effective. That a game that seems like it's just kind of uh, you know long grinding mid game. Nah, I don't see that going well for me. I'm I'm going I'm accelerating us to end game uh, right now. And I've I, I've experienced certainly that there are some powers that seem in a more tenuous position as far as this decision, maybe particularly where a point you need to defend is far enough away from your home centers or from other important defensive centers that you have to make a full move in that direction to really defend it well. Okay, let me see if if I can give an example that fits in with what you're talking about. Let's say that there is a Turkish player who is really who's really strong and threatening uh, to solo win. This Turkish player uh, controls most of the East, including Berlin, and has crossed the stalemate line and controls Berlin. So you are France, and you perceive, mm, we need to put Tunis behind a stalemate line to offset the loss of Berlin. So that way Turkey will be 
con- constrained to, to only 17 supply centers, uh, even if they control all of Italy, Austria, and southern Russia, plus Berlin. But we've subtracted Tunis, so they'll be stuck at 17. I have to do this. To stalemate Tunis, that's going to require me to line up units in North Africa, Tunis, Western Mediterranean Sea, Spain, Marseille. Uh, let's say I've been a, played a weak game. I only got five units. That's pretty much everything. I have to I have to send everything that I have to go and fortify Tunis uh, right now. Maybe there's a lone Italian unit in Tunis that okay, okay, I can I'll help this player get into the draw because they've got a position there that I need to defend with them. You have to make that decision. And uh, well, what's the English player going to do? Do they also do they understand this? that this is it, this is now or never, either we fortify Tunis and stop the solo win. Yeah, Turkey hasn't finished off Italy and Austria still has Vienna or something, but that's all going down. You know, that, that's not that's not going to hold up forever. We got to get Tunis while we still have this chance. So you move everything out of the way and England goes, oh, I guess I just get your supply centers, thanks. Uh, that's That stinks. Anyway, is that the situation you're, the kind of situation you're talking about? Yeah, and it seems like the powers that are on that, uh, sort of no man's land have that happen far more frequently than others. You're exposing yourself in order to strengthen that border necessarily. You know, if you have a certain certain parity of units with people you're you're battling against. To well, in that situation, it's tough. In gunboat diplomacy, you just depend on the other player understanding what you're trying to do. And my advice is to just make the right moves. If the other player is the reason why you lose. And that's why you lost. But you were going to lose anyway if you didn't make uh, the stalemate line as you knew you needed to do. In press diplomacy, you can explain to them what you're trying to do. Even then, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily have to believe you or agree. There's other motives that are going in there as well. That maybe um, if you're done playing the match and you think all I'll ever get is a draw, then you're you're more likely to jump on board the this is endgame, time to stop the soloist uh, mentality. And if you think, I'm doing pretty good, you know, that guy could start a solo win attempt, mess it up, and then I get to solo win or something, and maybe you'd rather see them go a little further. So there can be a lot of different things uh, taking place that cause players to to disagree because they disagree strategically. They have different goals in mind at the game, not just that they perceive uh, the tactics differently, although that's that's there as well. You could you could branch that out in another direction, because I was thinking as you were talking that my estimation of the strengths of each country would factor greatly into the value, let's say, of those countries ceasing being allies and attacking each other. There's the, what are the possible things that I could entice to happen between these players, but then also the, what is the most likely thing to happen if I was successful? Can I make anything out of that? You might find that there's not really a desirable thing you could entice to happen. And I've often found myself, I suppose, in those sorts of situations where Maybe I see what's most likely to happen, but I don't necessarily see a way to bend that to my advantage. You know, I've, I've been trying to think, is that a failure of mine in the early game? You know, do, do I need to pay more attention to trying to arrive at a mid-game state where there are desirable options available to me? If you're not playing with an eye to the mid-game, you're leaving out a lot of what is essential in the early game. You may be in a strong position, 
but by not paying attention to the other players' positions, you may very well, it may be a Pyrrhic victory in essence. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that a, in a well-played game of diplomacy, all your moves are chosen with the entire board in mind and that a inexperienced player is just looking to figure out where their next supply center will come from. And in fairness to them, that's better than nothing. That oftentimes when players have just started playing diplomacy, they're like, what do I do? I'll say, well, pick a supply center that you think you might be able to get and uh, try to get it. It's a very simplistic style. Uh, but eventually, you know, those training wheels got to come off because there's a lot more to the game than just picking a supply center and going for it. Okay. I would like to, I'm really interested in this second topic that you raised, uh, how to recognize a certain way of playing and the kinds of players. This is, this is a fascinating topic that other diplomacy content creators bring up, uh, player archetypes and whatnot. This is really helpful uh, because you're going to play with strangers and you have to make some kind of assessment of them. Well, the way that I speak about this is in diplomacy, like any competitive game, uh, you want to have a psychological model of the players you're playing against in your mind, an entire little fake version of that player's brain that you are simulating inside your own brain that you can run experiments on. You know, if I move this piece here, what's going to be the reaction to it? If I say this to them, what will they do? It can be as narrow and tactical as if I, if I attack, you know, uh, I'm, I'm making, I'll use a diplomacy example. Uh, if I, if I'm, if I'm England and I open the English channel, what effect is that going to have on these players? What will they, what will they, how would be the reaction to it? Each player might have a different reaction, but, or it can be as, as personal and psychological as if I make this person, if I, guilt this person and try to shame them and say how like how they've made a lot of incompetent moves about to be backstabbed and they're they're just a fool will that cause them to stubbornly continue on the path that i don't want them to do out of sheer defiance or will this person go oh man ah shoot i'm really i'm really blowing it here and this this guy is pointing it out i need to change course and start doing the thing that you want them to do there's no skeleton key to other people's minds. Sometimes when people talk about diplomacy, they say, yeah, 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 diplomacy heuristics aren't that great. It works unless it doesn't. It works until it doesn't. You can try this, but then it doesn't work. That response to these heuristics is actually a straw man of the position, which is not that um, guilting players always works. It's that guilting players may work and uh, don't don't rule that out. It may it will sometimes work, and when you use it, it, when it will be effective, is contextual, and you have to appreciate how human beings are motivated, and that human beings aren't generic. Every single individual person is unique. So, wow, now I'm really like contradicting what I said, right? Or it seems like it because I said the archetypes are valuable, and so somewhere between generic archetypes of how you think a human being is. And this specific individual are the topics you're raising in your question, which is types of people that we can, okay, I can't get to know this in person from beginning to end. I can't peer into their soul and, <laughs> and know everything about them. But I can say, you know, this guy really reminds me of that fella Jim I knew. Uh, and, and he, whenever I, whenever I did, you know, whenever I, whenever I told him to think twice, he did. 
and maybe that'll work here. And uh, sometimes that works. And that it depends on your sensibilities. You, you have the ability to recognize similarities in, in human beings and whatnot. Bringing this to something more specific for diplomacy, there are situations so where I you might want to... How can I say, okay, take this a is a player who's worthy of and my trust. I think, I think, I think this is a good time because I perceive this other player as probably they're going to continue. They're, they're, they're gonna, I need to trust them, but my trust in them is going to be rewarded. That's what I think. You might, like the, the generic, it, not, not archetype-based mind would tell you something like, well, no, people are greedy. People are greedy and this person's going to betray you. Like, well, you know, some players would. Other players not. And I, I know that. I play diplomacy. Players do things that are baffling. You know, I would never have done this, but they did. But the players uh, from the beginning. And then as the match develops, start refining that. So let's say I'm in a game that's like, okay, it's a pickup game. I have no idea who's in it in particular, but there was some barrier to entry. So I know the players have some experience. Well, what do I do? Well, I start messaging them and see about how they talk. You know, do they talk in a way that shows familiarity with the game? Do they know the jargon? Are they abbreviating countries correctly? Are they talking about the game like it's a role-playing game? Okay, that's a certain that's a certain kind of person that I, you know, they keep addressing me as the sultan. Okay, uh, that's how they write. But that tells me something about them that I can start building into my into my psychological model. And then as they choose their moves and so on. So, uh, for example... If the player has played in a way that shows trust in other players, they took risks and uh, are not lying, then that makes me think, okay, this is a player who um, who views diplomacy as a game about trust building and is probably only going to lie uh, as a last resort or or to, to try to solo win, and they're willing to extend trust. This is a good player to have as an ally. I start thinking things like this versus okay I'll, I'll give i'll give an example of of this uh this might be an italian player who opens uh naples to ionian sea venice to apulia rome to naples or something like wow okay that's a very unusual opening uh but now i know a lot about you because very few players would choose that opening and that's an opening that shows a high degree of trust uh in uh all your neighbors and trying to befriend everybody, and that's a certain approach. And okay, because uh, normally almost any opening Italy does makes it impossible for Austria to take Venice, except that one. Austria would capture Venice if Austria moved Trieste to Venice. Versus an Italy who does something like, "Hey, Austria, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna open Venice to Trieste. Um, you can, you, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to attack you. You're, I just don't want to take any risk. Okay, well, this is a player who is, you know, grizzled." and uh, maybe paranoid and so on to take it to shoot, shoot. You know, that's a player who you could be trying to get as an ally, already afraid of them from the opening moves. Goodness gracious. And you learn a lot. Okay, you know, this is this this player's got a certain approach. Uh, I, so for me, I look for a combination of how the player is addressing other people, their frequency of their messages, and um, how down to brass tacks it is and uh and then and then the actual movements that they pick uh and whether those make sense or not to me uh what kind of strategy can be implied by how they're playing and uh, in this way refine uh, a mental model of the player so i don't rely on the idea of presumed 
archetypes much more than let's say the first couple of years and then i've whittled that down if i know who's in the match i may start trying to pick particular people as uh one of my friends said by in in a gunboat game by 1902 i know who you are (laughs) when we play together but it's because you've seen them every time they get austria they make this opening and then do this follow-up every time i don't know this is for me, I, I'm looking for, um, most importantly, I'm assessing their competence level. If the player seems to have low competence, that is a player who I don't want as an ally in the early game because they will maybe cause us to lose despite my efforts to be their ally. That is an ally who I want in the mid game because it means that um, I'll probably be able to backstab them effectively and they will probably not backstab me effectively. And uh, this may be who I need as my ally to get to a solo win. They probably won't understand that I'm about to do it. And in endgame, I would very, if I'm solo winning, would really love to have around the board because they don't understand how to stop it. And if I'm defending, wish that I had taken them out of the game earlier (laughs) because uh, they don't know what's going on and how to stop the solo win. So in this way, this very utilitarian kind of thing, I'm thinking of what use is this player to me is the more important question than what kind of player they are. Because the player being competent or not competent has maybe is maybe useful or harmful to me depending on the context of the game. And I've already said there's at least two contexts where I would want a competent ally, a competent player as an ally, and two contexts where I'd want an incompetent player as an ally. Understanding that high-level players assess the game this way could give you some insight as to how they're choosing their allies and why alliances shift over time as the players' strategic thoughts change which allies seem attractive to them. I know that there are players who can disguise their competence level, so I look for little clues that might, okay, you know, these players seem pretty dumb, but then they executed like this really complicated tactical situation that only makes sense if they really understood what was going on in the game. So, okay, this is actually a pretty canny player. The next thing that I care about is how the player assesses the game strategically. There are players who just like are a solo win or bust kind of person. Uh, you know, what, what that means to you depends on the, what's happening in the game. This is a player who might, for example, strike a deal where you both cross the stalemate line significantly to both get an opportunity to solo win. This is also a kind of player who may just give up and stop responding or, or entering in thoughtful orders if we're just fighting for a draw. Uh, they may not care anymore. They don't. They don't view a draw as a valuable outcome. And so, okay, well, you know, I, that's 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 what. This is aside from their competence level. Then there are players who view diplomacy as a game, uh, like an interpersonal game. And well, you know, if I if I trust this player, let's just see how far that can go. You know, what can I do? Can I pull off something that's really inventive? And then there are players who view the game just as a game. Uh, I would say this is. If I, if I could self-describe as being this kind of player that like this is a game and here are the outcomes, you know, what I think I need to do and get not get these different outcomes. I, I don't know. So like I, I'm the kind of player who would get backstabbed and go, oh, well, um, but now, hey, maybe you should join with me, though, even though you just backstabbed me because I see a way that we could be working together and uh, not take revenge or, or something. At the same time, I don't want players to perceive that about me because then they won't be afraid of backstabbing me. 
So that in a high level game of diplomacy, wh- how players are presenting their behaviors, there's a lot of smoke screens that are that are involved where players may may feign that they take offense uh, because they're trying to project that they're a maniac so that you leave them alone. And and, uh, you know, I've done that even though it's not true. So uh, where I'm going with this is that just because you have a certain perception of a player, don't get too um, attached to it. If they do something that seems inconsistent with how you've perceived them or how they presented themselves, be paranoid, be skeptical and say, you know, this player acted so outraged uh, about getting backstabbed and then supported that player's piece the very next turn. Ah, oh man, this player might be um, super good, can manufacture outrage to make a point, uh, but actually it wasn't real. Oh shoot. Uh, And then you got to take that into account that like, okay, subsequently, the emotions that I'm sensing from this player could be manufactured. Uh, oh boy. So that's always fascinated me about this game, about all games. But when you're playing a game, presumably the rules of the game are the extent of what's permissible. But there's the additional element of why are people playing the game in the first place? If they're playing it for reasons that are incompatible with your way of winning, <laughs> uh, that might work for a game, but it wouldn't work in a league or it wouldn't work in, you know, as a part of a broader context of games. And so that's been one of the most interesting things about this is that if you do manipulate people, some people are going to feel abused by that. And some people are going to be amused by the fact that you were able to succeed in the game using that and view it just as another strategy that people have in the game. I haven't played press diplomacy partly because I think I would invest about five to six times as much time in a game like that as I would in a gunboat game. But I imagine that that there is somewhat playing with that line, you know, that people have different reasons for playing and might view certain strategies as not just unpleasant, but actually incompatible with the reason they play the game in the first place, that kind of enjoyment of making allies and, and working out. Although some people do seem to play games as a way of socializing or as a way of enjoying other people's company. And those people I think would be the most, not only susceptible, but probably feel the most offended by those kinds of strategies because it it runs roughshod over their secondary or maybe even primary reason for playing. I think that's a really great insight. There are a certain amount of unwritten rules that come from the social aspect of the game that are beyond the contours of the game itself. A reference to Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, Orlando Bloom says to uh, Johnny Depp, those are the actors, the, uh, he says, you know, it wasn't a fair fight when you beat me. Or Johnny Depp playing Jack Sparrow says something like, there's only two rules in a fight, what a man can do and what a man can't do. And this is an interesting, I love this moment. The characters are having a discussion about what it means to be a pirate, that this character, Orlando Bloom's character, is supposed to be noble and chivalrous, and Johnny Depp's character is supposed to be a pirate. And so they have a different concept of what it means to be in a fight. And learning this insight that there are only two rules is how Orlando Bloom's character is slowly over the course of the story, becoming a pirate. That being a pirate is more than just law-breaking. It's an entire mentality. It's a whole way of life. You can approach a game of diplomacy in a similar way. 
I could use the game to find out a lot of personal details about you and then use that information, your personality and whatnot, uh, to motivate and influence you to play the game in a certain way to my advantage. You know, if you say I'm taking the, the, you know, Jack Sparrow approach, there's only there's only two rules, what I can say and what I can't say. And I can say uh, this. And so I will. In diplomacy as a community, there are limits. There are limits. I mean, the, the the players won't tolerate cheating, like trying to manipulate a player to do something with stuff that's outside the game, like you, like bribing a player or offering to help them out in another context, uh, threats of violence. There are rules about how you can't insult people based on like racism and sexism, that there's some stuff that like, listen, at some point, this is no, this is just not appropriate for a game. However, the accepted limit of what you can do in diplomacy and still be conforming with the code of conduct is a very different kind of sportsmanship than other games. That's for sure. It's a very different kind of sportsmanship because the very nature of the game is asking you to look into this side of yourself and human nature and how to interact with people. To put it another way, it's part of the fun. Uh, If that's not fun for you, I understand. I mean, not not you specifically, but there aren't that many games where that's what you're trying to do. So like I joined a diplomacy game and if a player were to try to really get in my head and I am resisting these psychic attacks as you as I as I may characterize them, I enjoy that. I think, OK, I'm really learning here and I, I am I have gained insight in myself about what kind of psychic attacks I can and can't resist, how I could improve. And wow, maybe I could try that actually, you know, on someone else in the future. But if your, you know, conceptualization is that diplomacy is just like any other board game, then uh, you may be in for a nasty surprise. I would say it goes the other way around. Most other board games have this kind of stuff in it where people are real. They get real intense over Monopoly. And, uh, you know, Settlers of Catan, I think I am attracted to diplomacy because it's just accepted in that this is how we're going to play the game. We're going to we're going to play it, you know, by pirate rules. We're going to say that you can pretty if it's not specifically listed here in the code of conduct, something you can't do, then you can. And uh, there's what you can do and what you can't do. Those are the rules. And uh, that's that's neat. There's not a lot of opportunities like that out there in the world, the closed universe of the board game forces you to actually be interacting. We're not just writing messages and posting or leaving some graffiti somewhere the way like I think of posting things on the internet. This is a conversation with a real human being over over some stakes. It's completely fictionalized. It's totally artificial. The stakes are moving little pieces of paper around on a piece of card. And so I like that, that now that we've removed all real stakes, there's no, you know, there's no money involved. There's, there's, this is not an election. It's just <laughs> who's going to get Belgium? You know, is it going to be, is it going to be England? Is it going to be France? Who's going to get Belgium? It's a totally manufactured thing. And now we get to employ all those powers, powers of persuasion, powers of perception, influence and, and resistance to these things. And in everyday life, those things matter, uh, but there's not a, when do you get good at that? <laughs> where, where, where's that place? Um, and they're out there. 
And I think diplomacy is one of them. Yeah, that's a fascinating, the, the pedagogical value of having contexts in which you're able to practice these skills without inflicting the full consequences of them that would exist in real life. And it helps you not only to be able to make use of them in appropriate ways, but also to resist their use by people who are behaving inappropriately, which is just as important. There's a lot of not, I, I know you've talked quite a bit at different points in our lives about the utility of games as an educational thing, maybe a little differently than how people might perceive education, but just that there are aspects of games that train things that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to practice or train uh, to competence. Yeah, I, I appreciate your bringing that up. Games test skills, and the game can be designed in a way to test a specific skill or some combination of skills. And in this way, you can learn how to develop that skill in a way that in everyday life might otherwise be very difficult. So even though uh, I consider the skill of something as simple as perceiving that one is being manipulated, just noticing, hmm, you know, I think that person doesn't have my best interest in mind. They're trying to get something out of me. And I, I sense this for X, Y, and Z reasons. That's a valuable skill. Pretty much any human being can benefit from being a little bit better at that kind of thing. But when, <laughs> how do you sit down and, and practice that? It's, it's kind of specific. And most of the people you know wouldn't do that kind of thing. And most of the people who would do that kind of thing to you would never admit it. So how do you practice it? And say like, okay, well, we're all going to sit down and we're all going to play uh, poker. Oh, okay. Now we're all playing poker. And suddenly my friends and so on who otherwise, who really do have my best interest in mind, would never do anything uh, detrimental to me. But they will try to beat me at this game. And so uh, th that is this one context where they are willing, because we've agreed to play the game, they will do something detrimental to me. They're going to cause me to lose and gain a win. Now, okay, they're showing this side, these skills that they have, or maybe they don't have, and they're going to lose. Uh, but they're showing these skills, and oh, okay, now I have to figure out how to counter those skills, and we learn. And when the game's over, you can discuss it and uh, get better, read up on how to be better at the game, et cetera. And then um, when you're in real situations, real life, everyday situations, I, off, I often say it's like you've come down uh, from a higher league, to use the baseball metaphor, because what takes place in a game context is so distilled, it's so intense, it's, it's like, okay, when someone's trying to, to bluff me over, you know, a, selling me this car, it, it's so transparent, because, you know, I... That's way harder to do for an average person than to bluff about what your poker hand is. I've perceived extremely good bluffing poker players and perceived that they were bluffing. So if I can do that, I can penetrate the lies of the everyday lies of many people. And uh, I am, I'm, I'm, better, I'm better for it as a person, I think. And there's, I could go on, but there are many other things, planning ahead, thinking strategically, how to look for a way to cooperate with somebody else. And it could go on and on. And uh, we are uh, past the limit of the time that we allocated to recording the dojo today. So I really appreciate your coming, Kevin. I hope to see you in the future because, man, we could probably have, we could probably go on three more hours. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. And your thoughts on this are 
helpful as always in all sorts of different areas of life. All right. See you around, Kevin. This episode was made possible by the generous support of people like you. For more information, visit patreon.com slash brotherboard. You can learn more from your board brother at brotherboard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, share, and review. Thanks to Loyalty Freak Music for the theme music, It Feels Good to Be Alive too. 